the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 9 today, chapter 9. So a bit of a recap, if maybe you've missed a couple weeks, or if it's your first time with us, the book of Revelation is the very last book of the Bible, and it has to do with things that did happen in the past, things that did in, in, um, in the first chapter, I believe, uh, and the second and third chapter as well, um, having to do with the churches of the first century. And then I believe the rest of Revelation, uh, four and forward, is mostly future, mostly future, okay? And um, meaning it's prophecies, revelation, revelatory prophecies given by God to John the Apostle uh, that are about the imminent return of Christ. And so what you're going to see is a lot of images of heaven and earth. In other words, a lot of um, these narratives and discourse that teach us what heaven is is like and what earth is like. Um, oh, oh no, I, this is just for recording. It's not a mic to project. Yeah, no problem. I'll project louder, though. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, now when we, we look at our text today, we are covering two of the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. Now, these are trumpet judgments, okay, trumpet judgments. Last week, we covered four of them that are listed in chapter 8. And you're like, okay, what are trumpet judgments? Well, if you remember in Revelation 4 and 5, we had this scene in the throne room of God in heaven that John saw, and it was an amazing scene. And he sees these four living creatures or these angels, and he sees 24 elders gathered around God's throne worshiping him. And all of a sudden, there's a scroll that's revealed. In this scroll that is revealed, they say there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And so John weeps loudly. But then they say, look, no, behold, the lamb who, who appeared as he had been slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has come. And he is worthy to open the scroll. So heaven responds in worship to, to this moment in Christ. And what happens is you see in chapter 6, uh, those seals, there's seven seals on this scroll all six of them are unfolded. Now, what's happening? This is judgment in the future. Part of this seven-year period in the future of tribulation and judgment that's going to be cast upon the earth. Now, if you understand uh, my view of the last things at the end of time, I believe that the church does not experience this time as the church as we know it. So if you are a believer in Christ today, we do not go through the tribulation, in my opinion. There's different, different views on eschatology, and you should learn them. You should learn them. It's really important to learn them and understand them and come to your own conviction about it. Uh, and so that is my conviction as it relates to the book of Revelation, understanding it. I just think that's the best argument and uh, most persuasive to me, most plausible. So, um, but I'm always trying to learn, and I even in some of the commentaries I use and study, I try to look at the other views to help me challenge my view and shape my view in this way. Okay, But I would say every view agrees with this one thing. Jesus will return, and he's promised, and he will do that. And so these, these, all these six seals unfold in judgment, their future, and then the seventh seal is open. In the seventh seal on the scroll, you have what comes next in the judgment, seven trumpets. The, last, the first four trumpets from last week are all ecological calamities, meaning on earth, the ecosystem that we live in, God judges the earth in this way and causes great disaster and calamity on the earth. But now in chapter 9, we're going to see two more trumpet judgments. I'm going to try and work my way through this well for you guys, but I'm going to go ahead and give the main idea statement uh, of this chapter. It's real briefly. It'll be on the screen. So God's wrath through the trumpet judgments reveals the role of spiritual warfare and the depravity of mankind. Okay. 
So God's wrath through the trumpet judgments reveals the role of spiritual warfare in judgment and the depravity of mankind. Now you might notice, and I actually notice this every week, maybe I should uh, share it with BJ, but the word judgment there, it is spelled without an E nowadays, but back in the olden days, they used to spell it with an E, with the E in the middle there. So um, yes, but judgment is spelled without an E. Okay, um, so God's wrath through the trumpet judgments reveals the role of spiritual warfare in judgment and the depravity of mankind. Uh, so, when we look at the context, like I said, I kind of walked through all the context there leading up to this. But if we go right into our text, um, starting in actually in 8.13, 8.13 is a transition to these new kinds of judgments. Remember I said they're all ecological before? Now, the rest of these are actually going to be spiritual judgments or we might say demonic judgments. And, and not, what I mean by that is not necessarily that the judgments in and of themselves are demonic. They're not because God is judging and he is righteous in his judgments, but rather the means by which the judgment takes place on earth is through the means of demons, okay? Uh, and we're going to talk about that, okay? So the rest of mankind, sorry, I was reading the wrong verse, 8.13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So you look at this text, notice it's not W-H-O-A, like whoa, dude, whoa, right? It's not saying that. It's a different kind of woe, W-O-E. Now, if I haven't defined this before, I'll do that for you now. Um, woe in scripture refers to some great calamity, usually a judgment from God, as Walbert says. And he continues describing this, saying it expresses the desperate situation of those who do not know Christ in these tragic hours preceding his return to judge the world. So, when Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, maybe you remember this scene, and he sees God in all of his glory and majesty in the throne room in heaven. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. What's he saying? What's he saying here? He's saying, man, great calamity and judgment should come upon me because I see the one who is holy and perfectly clean, who angels are flying around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I'm not holy. As a matter of fact, because of my unholiness, I deserve judgment. And you guys know, same with Isaiah's state, that's all of our states apart from Christ, that we all deserve judgment from God apart from Christ. And students, why is that? Answer that for me. Why is that? Why do we deserve judgment apart from Christ? Why? Because we sin. We are sinners. Hey guys, if I break the law, I should pay for it, right? Right? If I came in your house and I stole your stuff, you think I should get in trouble for that? Yeah, that's called justice, right? It's called justice. Justice should be served. And what if I didn't get in trouble? What would you call that? A crime or injustice, right? We get it when we see something, when we see an act of injustice happen. Within your own heart, you're like, why? Why does this have to happen? Why did this happen? And it's this natural inclination we have. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And so we get the idea that injustice is wrong and that there should be justice. But we have to think, what is our standard, right? Now, this is not a sermon on justice. We can do that another day. But my point is if God is judging, he's the one who's just in judging. And as we think about us deserving judgment, right, every sin deserves the anger and judgment of God. When I ask my kids that question in catechism at that time, I say, that's the exact answer. I, said, I say, Shiloh, what does every sin deserve? 
And he says, the anger and judgment of God. That's what every sin deserves. You know that? And we're going to talk more about that in the end. And actually, as we're going throughout, really. But um, now, when we read our text today, let's look at uh, verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Look down at your Bibles. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And I want to encourage you, if you don't bring your own Bible, bring your own Bible. If you need a Bible, please ask me, and I will gladly give you a Bible, okay? Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the uh, with the smoke from the shaft. So we look at this, this first scene here, and this, this trumpet is blown. And we've already seen before in our text in Revelation, uh, and as a matter of fact, in last week's text and two weeks ago in our text before that, we've seen the starry host of heaven experience disturbances. For instance, go back to Revelation 6, just a couple pages back. Revelation 6, verse 12. What does Revelation 6, verse 12 to 17 says? When the sixth seal was opened. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And notice the starry host. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king's of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him, God, who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Remember that? Remember that text we studied just a couple weeks ago? And then in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. So what are we saying? Disturbances. Clear, clear as day. In all three of these texts so far we've covered, all the way to chapter 9 here, there's disturbances in the starry host of heaven. This judgment is so obvious, you know, we don't even think about it, right? I mean, one, we don't normally stare directly at the sun, right? Because mom and dad says, hey, don't, you're going to lose your eye- eyesight, right? It's not a wise idea. Right, but we might look at the, we might recognize and feel the effects of the sun. We might look at the, the moon. It was a full moon. We pulled into our driveway last night, and child was like, look, Dad, full moon. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? We notice the moon, right? It's beautiful. We notice the stars. Maybe if you've gotten to the country, away from the city, you see some beautiful stars, right, out at night. And sometimes we take it for granted in a way, right? But think about it. In judgment, God is going to get the attention of the world through the starry host facing disturbances. And we see, like in our text now, there's a sense where that's happening. And, but I, I want us, we've seen that, but also uh, I believe this passage is focusing that star on a specific person. It's not just like, you know, it's not like uh, Haley's Comet came and fell down from heaven. It's not, it's not like a, you know, Orion's belt made it to earth and fell down on earth, right? It's not what the text is saying. Because notice, it gives this star a personal pronoun. He, he. And this this star can do something. So what is this star? I think the text of Scripture in Revelation later in our text, we'll see that when we get into Revelation 13, clearly reveals that this star is, in fact, the devil or Satan. Okay? And we're going to walk through that. But I want you to notice also in our text, he says, I saw a star 
fallen from heaven to earth. Notice the way that word fallen is said. Notice he didn't say, I see it falling. Doesn't say that. Fallen from heaven to earth. That's in, in the Greek, it's in what's called the perfect tense. You're like, Travis, all I hear is Charlie Brown's teacher. Womp, womp, womp. What is the perfect tense? Okay, perfect tense is this. It's when it's an action that took place in the past, but has continuing effects to this day. So a very good example. If you've trusted Christ, and maybe you've been baptized to publicly profess that faith you have. At one point, you were saved, right? For me, it's 20 years ago. I've been saved for 20 years now. And that was a completed action in the past that what? Has continuing effects to this day, right? Because you guys understand that? The perfect tense, right? So we see this in the same way. This word fallen, it's a completed action in the past that has continuing effects to this day. So this star had fallen sometime in the past, a completed action, but has continuing effects to this day from heaven to earth. And he, Satan, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Well, let's talk about what is this bottomless pit. This is the abyss, okay? Um, the scholars say that this is a transcendent place associated with the dead and hostile powers. In other words, the netherworld or the abyss. Yes, these are other words that can be used in its place, um, especially the abode of the dead. We see this in Romans 10:7 or Psalm 106, 26. I'm not going to read those. And also the abode of demons, okay? Luke 8:31 is another reference text as is the way that this word is used. Um, in Revelation 20, verse 3, if we uh, flip to Revelation 20, I'll actually read that one since it's in our book, because this word abyss is used seven times in the book of Revelation. Really interesting, seven times. That number keeps popping up for some reason. Um, but notice it says in Revelation 20, verse 3, um, actually we can just do 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Notice, threw him into a pit. What is this pit? It is the abyss. It is the abyss. It is the netherworld. It is a, a spiritual place, um, and where it, obviously they, these spirit beings can be sealed. An angel is a spirit. Okay, An angel is a spirit. And if your doctrine of angels, you know, you're, you're, you need to know that. They don't have physical bodies. They can make human form in communicating with mankind, clearly, um, but they are spirits. So this person in this text is given the key to the bottomless pit. This, this is, I believe, Satan. This phrase, bottomless pit, like I said, is found seven times in Revelation. Now, I want to state again that I think this verse 1 isn't recording the fall from heaven as it is happening. It's the perfect tense. It's describing this one star. So just want to keep that in mind as we're moving forward. But Walford says this about this section. He says, This chapter presents Satan as having the key to the pit of the abyss with power to release those who are confined there. Now, um, look at verse 2, though. Look at what verse 2 goes on to say. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So when we look at this verse, focus on the use of the key and what happens when he uses the key. Judgment begins to pour out onto the earth from this abyss. But what is this judgment? It seems kind of confusing at first, but Walford says this, and it's really helpful. He says, the pit of the abyss is opened, and out of it comes a smoke so great it darkens the sun and the air. The smoke seems to foreshadow the spiritual corruption that will be caused by these demons 
released from their confinement. And it identifies the judgment of the fifth trumpet as that of demonic and satanic oppression, which leads us to the next part of this trumpet. Okay, let's look at verse 3 to 6, which is the demonic torment that's going to be loosed on the earth in this time. So, verse 3 to 6. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth nor, or any green plant or any tree, but only those, who people, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Really peculiar passage. People have interpreted it differently. But let's, let's try to examine this and walk through it. This is what I believe this text is saying. Now, notice where are these locusts coming from? They're coming from the pit, this abyss. Uh, and I think these locusts, uh, it's, a, and it's a metaphorical way for them to actually be demons. And this is why I want to say that, because notice what they do. What do locusts do, right? Locusts, what do they harm normally? Yeah, Bailey, what do they harm? They harm grass. Grass. Yes, so we're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about why um, this is, I think, a symbol, okay? But you're right, you're right, Bailey, they harm grass. What else do locusts harm? What do they harm? Crops, thank you. Yeah, so agricultural societies are like, you know, when they see locusts come, like in Egypt, or studying the book of Exodus, it's often a plague of judgment upon the land, right? So agricultural stuff, crops, trees. But what is the, t guys, look at the text. Look at what the Bible says. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but they harm people. That's really interesting. It seems that these locusts are one of a different kind. And notice where their source is. Their source is from the abyss and from the pit. And this person who it is referring to is, is Satan, who we're going to see later in Revelation 13, who is the one who has the key to this bottomless pit, this abyss. And this word uh, for abyss... Um, we're going to actually sorry, we're going to examine this a little further as we get going. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So these locusts are coming from the pit, like I said, are actually demons. Notice how it's describing them. How does the text say? They were given power, listen to this, like the power. So that's a simile, right? When we see the word like or as, and if it's a figure of speech, that's called a simile. It's just trying to describe what's happening here. Uh, like a scorpion. Like a scorpion. So... Um, what's really interesting about that, um, as we're examining this text, they're like the power of scorpions in the earth. Has anyone here ever been stung by a scorpion? Anybody? Okay, yeah. So it, in normally warmer climates, are, I mean, you can find scorpions in Louisiana, but they're often going to be very small. But if you go to other climates, like desert-type climates, they're often going to be much bigger, right? So if you watch like a movie in like Egypt or the Sahara Desert, you know, they might have a little scorpion crawling on the screen or something like that, right? Um, and it's, it's, they can be kind of pretty eerie creatures, right? They got this nasty tail with this is this big old like i don't know like almost like a bulb with a stinger on it and it can get you right and it's like wow that seems really painful and it is it actually can be deadly in some cases or dangerous if it's not treated but most of the time it just causes a whole lot of pain okay a whole lot of pain uh and so they would know that being people from that part of the world having dealt with scorpions and so this imagery would be really helpful to help them understand the type of effect they can have now notice this Verse 4, I didn't point this out before, but I want to say it again. They were told, they were told, they, they were commanded. Think about it. They were commanded here. Who, who told them? That's the question we got to ask. So there's two options here of who told them, and I think they're entirely plausible, and I, I might even say they could simultaneously be true. 
I would say it's either Satan told them to or God told them to. Now, think of the story of Job. What happens in the very beginning of the story of Job? For those who've read it. Eddie? Oh, okay. I'll just go back for someone else to answer. But the beginning of Job, in the first chapter, we see this image of whatever uh, God and all his angels are up in heaven. And Satan comes up to God and mentions Job, who is a, though a rich man, is a man who's after God's own heart. And um, Satan wants to test Job to see if he really is a man after God's own heart or if he's doing it just to keep his riches. And so God agrees to this, but Satan didn't do it on his own terms. Mm -hmm. God told him to first take away everything he had, and then it was stolen from him. Right, so God had to give Satan permission, and when Satan asked of him, give Satan permission to act on the earth. God told him he could do it. God told him he could afflict him. So... That's really important. That's what, guys, that's what the text says. That's not Travis's interpretation. The text says God allowed him, permitted him. In the same way, these locusts or demons were permitted to do what they are about to do in this text. And they, notice verse 5, they, they were told, verse 4, they were allowed. They were allowed. So this is a judgment from God. If God's going to send judgment, it's going to be on his terms. He's not going to be like, oh, no, I can't keep this under control. Hey, guys, God is... What? What is he? He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. What, what, what's the other word we use for that? Omnipotent. Say omnipotent. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. So we look at this. God, through Satan, gave the demons the command to not harm the grassy earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, you might remember... And I'll bring this up as another point later. In the Gospels, how did demons, we just went through the Gospel of Mark last year, how did demons respond to Jesus? How did they respond? Did they challenge him like, I'm going to fight you, Jesus, like they're equals? Did they run for their lives? How did they respond? What's that? They fell on their knees. So when, in, for instance, in Mark 4 or 5, it's right there somewhere, Jesus comes across the sea and comes across the Sea of Galilee, ends up in a place, and there's a man who is possessed by a thousand demons. And you know what that man does? He runs up to Jesus and falls down before him and says, and the demons through him say, Holy One of God, you know. They recognize who he is. They say his title, and they ask to be spared, to not be sent to judgment. That's amazing. That's an amazing scene if you think about it, because sometimes people like to paint God and Satan as like they're dueling rivals and they're equal in power. No way. No way. God alone is almighty God, sovereign. No one is equal to him, and definitely not Satan. And so the demons recognize that. And you know what? As James 2 says, which students, I use this verse often, and it's a very important verse. James 2.19 says, you believe God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble, and they shudder. So in other words, demons have their doctrine of God right. <laughs> they know God here. And how do they respond? They tremble in utter fear. How do you approach God? Do you just know knowledge about him? I hope you know him personally in your heart. So remember, they don't, they're not in the text. They cannot harm 
um, the people who have the seal of God in their forehead. So only the people that can be harmed are the ones who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now we talked about this in Revelation 7. So it's two weeks ago. If you might remember, in Revelation 7, he, in verse 2, he says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And so he has the seal. And then they're saying, look, what we need to do, if you go down to the end of verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, remember, I talked about this. This is not a visible, physical seal. Um, if you go to Ephesians 4.30, Ephesians 4.30, and what does that say? It says this. Um, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then you go to chapter 1. Chapter 1, starting in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Oh, that's a, you know, we're not even talking about how he works all things according to the counsel's will necessarily. We haven't been that verse. But think about our text today in judgment. God is working his judgment in all things according to the counsel of his will as well. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. Think about that day you heard the gospel and you were saved. Think about this verse. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We see that in our text, this idea of a seal. Those, but in our text, though, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's those who were not sealed, those who were not sealed that would face this judgment. So the torment, then, of these, this demonic warfare is upon those who have not accepted Christ. It's on those who have actually rejected Christ. And this torment is comparable, according to this text, to the bite of a scorpion. This torment will last for five months, but it won't kill anyone. Scorpion stings can be very painful, but not deadly. And I also think, as it says, it lasts for five months. I don't think this is symbolic. I think this is very literal. And the reasoning why is just because the way the seven years tribulation works itself out. But think about this for a minute. The, the lifespan of locusts is about five months, May to September. May to September. It's five months. And this trumpet judgment focuses on this specific type of judgment. Notice it says that people will seek death and will not find it. Okay? So you're like, what does that mean? Like, couldn't they just like go jump off a building or something, right? Or couldn't they just like jump out in front of a car and trap it? Okay. So what I think is happening in this text, like I said, this is speculation. I am speculating, but I'm trying to be consistent with the interpretation of Scripture. And the way that I, I wrap my mind around this, okay, um, is I think that because these people are rejecting Christ, they have been worshiping the beast in his image. They've been worshiping Satan in this, in this tribulation, right? They've been rejecting Christ. They've been rejecting the 144,000 who were sent out to evangelize to the world. And because the Antichrist has been at work in the world, and it's a, we would say, a one-world order under the Antichrist, that people have been demon-possessed in that time. And so those in the group of demons in the Gospels are not free to exercise their own will. So people might desire in and of themselves to die. Think of the demoniac. Remember, he wasn't like prim and proper, like, yes, I'm possessed, right? No, right? He was cutting himself. He had cuts all over his body. He was naked in a graveyard. He was an odd man. And obviously he was possessed by a thousand demons. He probably wished to be dead, wished to be free from that possession. 
and God set him free. And he was so grateful, he wanted to follow Jesus. So we look at this. As Walverd states, even their hope of death to deliver them from their present troubles is taken away from them in that dark hour. There's a sense where demonic and spiritual warfare is at such a heavy way in this fifth trumpet judgment. But now, notice go on in verse 7 through 11 of chapter 9. These locusts are further described, and I really want to walk through this. Verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. So it's trying to give us an understanding of these locusts. We can obviously get here that these are not literal locusts, right? Because a locust doesn't look like a horse, right? But it's trying to describe these people or these, these, these demons who are coming from the abyss or the bottomless pit. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. That key word like, maybe underline it because you're going to see it a ton in this text, like, just underline the word like. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them, listen to this, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon, in Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Ah, there, that's where we get the hint and understanding that this is Satan, that this is Satan. This text points that out. Now, notice, these, these demons are spiritual beings. They don't have physical form or shape. What John is seeing must be symbolic of what demon possession is like. There's a sense of human and animal qualities mixed together that create this terrifying picture. Imagine with me what this creature would look like. I don't know, maybe you tried to do that, but maybe if you weren't paying attention. Imagine, use your imagination with me. Let's read the text again. In appearance, the horses were like horses prepared for battle. Get a horse in your mind that's prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So just imagine that. That's a, that's a pretty bizarre picture, and I think what John is trying to paint for us, the best way he can describe is what demonic possession is like. Remember, these are instruments for divine judgment for those who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. As Revelation does all throughout, we get a clearer picture of who Satan is, and we see that in our text. We see different manifestations here than we do elsewhere, but also greater descriptions that help construct our biblical demonology. Maybe you've never thought of that, but having a right biblical demonology. One commentator suggests that these descriptions of demons are Satan's way of imitating the heavenly creatures. Remember the heavenly creatures in Revelation 4? had a very unique description to them as well. So that could be it. I'm not sure, but that could be the case. Uh, breastplates of iron, it communicates this idea of indestructibility. This wings that sound like chariots going into battle might imply the speed and the impossibility of evading their attack. There's no escape from this. Now notice, it gives this language of king. That's really interesting, is it not? King. It calls this one king. Now, if you... Keep your hand in Revelation, but go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And it talks about Satan in this, pa in this passage in Ephesians 2. Oh, I went too far. I guess I should be in Bible drill if I pass the Ephesians up, right? Okay. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Here's the text. Following the prince. A prince is a ruler, is he not? A prince of the power of the air. The spirit, that's Satan, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we look at that text. It's really crystal clear to us in Ephesians who this king, who this prince of darkness is. So we look at this, this text. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and, and sorry, in Greek he's Apollyon, which, by the way, they mean the exact same thing. Exact same thing. You know what that word is? Destroyer. Destroyer. Abaddon is Hebrew for destroyer. Apollyon is Greek for destroyer. John 10.10, some of you might even know this verse. John 10.10, when Jesus is talking about being the door to the sheep, and he talks about being the good shepherd, he says the thief comes only, comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan is that thief. He's the one who wants to, listen, let's get a little into some application here. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you, and he will find any means necessary to do that. Any means necessary to do that. But if you're sealed in God by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can't touch you. He might be able to, we might say, oppress you through trials that God allows, like he did with Job, to afflict you. But he ultimately can't take your life. He can't even afflict you apart from God allowing it. And think about what Satan also is. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at how it describes Satan here, which is really interesting. And I don't want to go off too off on a tangent here. But 2 Corinthians 11, 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, and the one we proclaim sounds like uh, Mormonism, right? We covered this past summer, another Jesus. Or Islam's Isa, that's, that's Jesus' name in the Quran for that. Another Jesus, and the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put uh, up with it readily enough. And so he talks about being taught a different gospel, a different gospel. And it's, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. Um, I think I typed in the wrong reference. Oh, no, at 14. I said 4 instead of 14. 11, 11, 14. But that is still true about what I said. Verse 4. It's in the same context. Look down at verse 14 in 2 Corinthians 11, 14. He says, um, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Hey, guess what, guys? When Joseph Smith had that allegedly glorious meeting in the woods, it was angels of light. When Muhammad was in the cave and he had his vision and he suffered pain under this angel, which, by the way, in the Bible, angels come, they don't inflict pain. They just bring a message. At least in the context of divine revelation happening. He heard this angel of light give him this message, according to Muhammad. Right? Satan is not afraid to disguise himself. Disguise himself. Think about that word. Deceive, to disguise, to appear one way, but actually be another. We do that at, at like Halloween, right? You put on a disguise. You put on a mask. You're not actually that superhero or that scary creature, right? You're you underneath that mask, but it's a disguise. Well, Satan, he says, look, I'm an angel of light. Listen to me. But no, he's actually the accuser. He's the destroyer, and he has sought to destroy people for a long time. 
it's because they deviate from the word. Hey, guys, I try my best every Wednesday, and, and we try our best every Sunday morning to let the word of God drive our teaching, our doctrine. And sometimes, because we're human, we might get it wrong. But that's why we're always seeking to grow. And I want to encourage you, bring your Bible. Don't just take my word for it, because to you, I've built a relationship and might be trustworthy. I hope I can earn your trust and keep your trust always. But we must be faithful to the text before we're ever faithful to a human person. You understand? That you're going to grow up one day, hopefully, right? You're going to grow up, and you might leave this church. And if you leave this church, you're going to hopefully go find another church. You know, I have friends around the country. You're right. You're like, wait, you have friends? Yes, I have friends. I'll go ahead. Yes, I have friends. And these friends, sometimes they end up in a position or a place where they can't find a healthy church. They can't find a good church to be a part of. And, and y'all listen closely here, okay? That's a, sad, that's a sad state. Now, they know what a healthy church is, and I just encourage them, look, find the healthiest one you can and try to be a good influence there. That's what I try to tell them to do. You need to know what a healthy church is. You need to know that, and that's found in the Word of God. We can't, we can't hop churches. There's a young man who's coming to our church now, and I, I first met him a few months ago. And the very first time I met him, the first thing he said to me is like, yeah, and he's like, I've been here in, in LSU for two years, but I've been kind of a church hopper. And I said, I just straight up said to him, I said, that's not healthy. Hey, welcome. Come on up, y'all. Yeah, absolutely. Take a seat. Hey, y'all. <laughs> All right. Hey, come on up. Good to see you. No, you're fine. No problem. No problem. All right. Good to have you guys with us. Right? And um, oh, well, I forget what I was saying real quick. But nevertheless, um, when, it, when it comes down to it, guys, we need to be a part of a healthy church. And we need to be thinking about what that looks like. And so I know it's kind of going off on a tangent there. So let's just get back to the text. Okay? Uh, so 2 Corinthians 11, find a healthy church. That's really important. But be careful. You've got to know your Bible. Okay? So now we're transitioning in verse 12 in our text. Revelation chapter 9, verse 12. Okay? Um, and in Revelation 9, 12, it says this. Now, I think this is a transition verse. I think it's pretty evident that it's a transition verse. Okay? Um, look at the verse. It's just really short and brief. It says, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Remember the woe, like I just want to rehearse that for you real quick. Like we said early on in the sermon, what is a woe? It is a word of judgment. It is a word that refers to great calamity, usually the judgment of God. And so he says, now this, behold, two woes are still to come. These have not happened yet. And what happens next here? Well, let's look then at verse 13 through 15, the sixth trumpet judgment. And it's, this is the loosing of the four angels. So let's talk about that. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, that's, you know, this is once again, remember, these are trumpet judgments, and these are judgments that are taking place. So this is the final time in Revelation where we see the altar in relation to God's judgment. Remember, the, the golden altar in the Old Testament was where they would offer sacrifices. They'd burn sacrifices. And it had these four horns on all, cor all four corners of the altar. Now, um, this is exactly how it had been described in the Old Testament and designed. 
and, and that's, that's important uh, that it's the last time as well, because this still is an act of worship on God's part. What he's doing is a, is a sacred thing. Even judgment is a sacred thing. That's why when Christ was judged for us and he took our place, that, that picture of judgment and imagery is, is there even in his death on the cross as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God directly tells the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels. Now, we, had, we talked about four angels before, right? And these four angels in Revelation 7, they held back the great winds of the earth, the four corners. These are different angels, though. These are the ones who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, God uses these angels in such a way, and he talks about angels being bound, for instance, in Jude 6. You, you, if you want to look that up, I'm not going to read that. Um, but these are different kinds of angels God uses as instruments of his judgment upon the earth, that his wrath might be poured out onto the world. So you might also know Satan is later bound. We actually read that already, Revelation 21 to 3. Satan is bound later in, the, in Revelation 20. So why the Euphrates River? Okay, why the Euphrates River? Well, Euphrates is east of Israel. East of Israel. And this likely is because this concerns an invasion from the east of Israel. God's sovereign control over this event is clear from how these four angels were prepared. Notice the text says, the angels who had been prepared... That's really key, isn't it? It's not like these angels were, like, sitting around at the Euphrates, like, well, we're just, we're just fishing or watching the water, whatever, right? No, that's not what the text says. God had in mind something very specific for these angels, and he had prepared them for it. And he, what he prepared them for was judgment. Notice, what is this judgment? Now, actually, let's, before I get to that judgment, what were they prepared for? Notice what the text says. Um, they were prepared for the hour the day, the month, the year. The text is not like, let me just mention every cut type of time for the sake of just saying it. He's being incredibly precise. Like God knew when he was going to enact judgment. And so he says, this very hour, this very day, this very month, this very year, at this time. So what, what's God saying? This has been planned. This has been well prepared, right? Well prepared. So, so, for instance, like Woodlawn, we might plan things ahead of time, plan a sermon series. And we're saying, well, you know, hey, yeah, we started Exodus last week. But, you know, when we started planning that, like August. So we had planned for last week for that day and for this upcoming year and this month, hour, right? We prepared for that in the same way. Well, God, at some point in the past, had planned for this time. God's judgment comes from his precise appointment. His precise appointment. He is meticulously sovereign over his creation. It's not some sort of general sovereignty where he, he just has some knowledge about what's happening. No, he plans it. He plans it. And let that be a comfort to you that his judgment is imminent, but it's at his precise appointment. Now let's look at verse 16 to 19. We're almost done with our text. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This is, in other words, 200 million, okay? Twice 10,000 times 10,000. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and a sapphire and a sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths. And in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. They wound. So John seems to emphasize the accuracy of this number by the way he states it. Earlier before, 
he seems more general about numbers than the worship of heaven. But he's saying, no, I'm, he actually gives us some math here, right? Twice, 10,000 times 10,000. And so he, he's doing this math here essentially for us. And he's saying, look, this is a, a pretty precise number of people. And, you know, 200 million people from the east is entirely possible, especially, right, if Revelation is future. You know, we got 8 billion people on the earth. 200 million is really not that much if you think about it. It's a lot. <laughs> it still is a lot. But in comparison to 8 billion, it's, it's you know, a, it's a good amount, but a smaller percentage. China alone, by the way, um, has reported that they have 314 million. Let me say that number again. 314 million. So it's 314-000-000, right? <laughs> That's a lot of men, able-bodied men from the ages of 16 to 49 that are military ready. That's like the size of the United States, almost. Like they could say, hey, we have your whole country worth of people ready to fight. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. I mean, and, and amazing in the sense of that's kind of terrifying when you think about it. That's a lot of soldiers. That's a whole lot of soldiers, right? So the language of these verses also, I would say, um, describes animals of deadly force. Notice the type of animals it uses, lions, uh, serpents, um, you know, horses, the power of horses, right? Horses were used in battle. So it uses these, this kind of imagery and this military might of those who are fighting, implying their success in killing others. Some have also speculated that some of this language could describe how modern warfare takes place. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of reluctant to say that, but I mean, I, I look at this and it says, okay, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Um, I don't think John was seeing a vision necessarily in the sense of like, oh, that's actually a missile, but he didn't know how to describe that coming, you know, coming out of their mouths. So, you know, we don't know what John saw. Just, let's just be frank, right? We don't know what John saw, but he's trying to describe best he can warfare. Warfare happening. And these mounted troops, okay? And they had a lot of power, at least we know. And they could kill. Um, and they, they were very good at it. And so, um, so really when we look at this, um, we think about, okay, um, I want to, I, so let, let me try to, Zoom out from this trumpet judgment to the big picture of the tribulation again. So I'm kind of zooming out. Remember, seven years tribulation. The first seven years of the tribulation, three and a half years, are years of peace promised by the Antichrist, where he's like promising world peace, promising world peace, and then world peace doesn't happen. And then you have the second half of the six, seven years tribulation, which is judgment, 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 right? And so, um, like I mentioned in, in kind of tongue in cheek, you know, whenever a beauty pageant Miss Universe person gets up there and they're like, you know, I want to help dogs and World peace. And everyone's like this. Right? <laughs> right? They all say world peace. Why? Because, you know, no one likes war. Right? Um, and so, when, it, when you think about it, um, the Antichrist would promise world peace, but as we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of Christ as the Prince of Peace, he's the only one who can truly provide peace to the world. Right? We're going to have wars, as Christ said, and rumors of wars up until the end, until he returns. And so we know that true peace is found in Christ alone. It's not found in a, in a president or in a, in a nation. It's not found anywhere. Yes, we want to love the nation we're from and try to always make it as righteous as we can through the influence of the gospel in our homes first, in our churches, and then in our cities, in our states, and then our nation. So think about it with me, small to big. I, I forgot someone. In our own hearts first, starting in our individual selves. If you're the only righteous follower of Christ in your home, start with you and then work your way out to your family, to your church, to your 
city, to your state, to the nation, and then to the world, right? We want to be that example, but we recognize that, that we have no savior in a politician, but only in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. But we should be involved in every level of these, those spheres I mentioned. So, the sixth trumpet, it continues here. I mentioned that was the beginning of the sixth trumpet right there that I had mentioned in verse 13, and now it's kind of ending here. Listen in verse 20, in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, listen to this really sad state here, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we see really clearly in this passage, the rest of mankind who survived these judgments, they saw these mighty judgments, even the heavens disturbed, the sky, the starry host disturbed, and yet their hard unrepentant hearts remained hard as stone, which shows the utter depravity of their state in this time, that they, are, they have the mark of the beast, as you're gonna, and we'll talk about that later, um, but they are people who are just sold out to, notice what the text says, they don't repent of the works of their hands, in other words, they worship themselves. Oh guys, we live in a culture of people who worship themselves, do we not? They, they want to have this picture-perfect life that they post on their Instagram or their social media, and they want to look a certain way. They want to appear to have it all together when none of us do. I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't have it all together, but I know I, I rely on him who does every day, and I hope you do too. But we look at this. Idols, worshiping demons. Worshiping demons, like what they have a, you know, what, what the Bible teaches is anything that's not worship of God is a worship of demons. It's, it's the truth. If you worship another false religion, that's the worship of demons. You're worshiping a demon there. Now you may not, Call it, they may not call it that, but that's what it is. Idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. So anything physical where I can make something up. But notice, they're idols which cannot see or hear or talk. Wow. They cannot see or hear or talk. But God, he sees. He sees all. God hears. He, you know, he hears the cries of the afflicted. He hears the cries of the downcast. And God talks. He talks in two ways. Two ways. The only two ways God talks. Through creation, not meaning you're going to put your ear to a rock and God's going to be like, hey, what's up? Nope. Anyhow, God talks through creation, all right? Sorry if I let you down and you have a bunch of rocks in your house and you're trying to listen to them. Um, no. The Bible says in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, the heavens, the stars... The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. One of my favorite uh, verses in Psalm 119 says that, um, that forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Think about that. God said, let there be light. Boom, there was light, and now it's fixed there in the heavens. That's amazing, isn't it? His word is fixed. You guys go look at the stars tonight and be like, wow, that's, that's God's word fixed into the heavens. That's really cool. Right? So creation is a way in which God speaks because it has his fingerprints all over it, his designing fingerprints all over it, right? That's one way God speaks. The other way God speaks is through his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active. The Bible is living and active. 
It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Then 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all Scripture, not some parts of Scripture I like and don't like, no, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The source is God. And it's profitable for teaching. So in other words, hey, the Word of God is it's good for you. It's, it profits you. Listen to this. It's really good for you. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And how did this come about? Well, go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. And we have the prophetic word, the Bible, the prophetic word, which what? Which are more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture was ever come, never comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not like Paul's like, all right, I've got to really come up with a prophecy here. No, it was produced. How? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This idea of carried along in the Greek is this word of like, like a boat being carried along by the wind. It needed the wind, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit of God to move that boat. In the same way, men wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we, we wrap up our text here. These verses of this sixth trumpet, they're not repentant because they cling to their idols. It shows the depth of human depravity. Mankind is wicked. It is evil. All human hearts that haven't experienced the transformative power of the gospel that refuse to bow the knee to Christ. They refuse to confess with their tongue that Jesus is not Lord. Really, they, they, they sit there and they, they worship their idols. And they say that their idols are Lord. Their idols are not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. These acts of great divine judgment take place before their eyes, yet they still do not give up their idolatry. And that is a sad state. So we look at these two trumpet judgments, and you might think, okay, Travis, once again, this is a text in the future. It doesn't apply to me. No, it does. It does, because number one, if you're not in Christ, and the tribulation comes, and the rapture comes, and you're not with the believers in heaven, well, then you can end up being part of this. So you need to pay attention, if that's the case, if you're not a believer. If you're a believer, we won't go through that judgment, but yet there are people that you interact with that might, if the Lord comes. So this is all important because it hasn't happened yet, and we should be imminently awaiting the Lord's return. So in conclusion for you guys, the conclusion application for this text, it's going to be on the screen. Do not harden your heart to Christ. Do not harden your heart to Christ, but humble yourself under his mighty hand. You know what we see in this text? The mighty hand of God at work. That God is mighty to judge. He's mighty to judge. But even in his judgment, he's doing it and he has been doing it because he loves. Now, that might be hard for some to understand. Like, how can a God who judges also be a God of love? Well, it's crystal clear. You want to know why? As I said earlier, every sin deserves the anger and judgment of God. My sins, my sins deserve the anger and judgment of God. All my sins, little and big, public and private. All my sins deserve the anger and judgment of God, and so do yours. But you know what Christ did? 
he died for us. He died on the cross as our substitute. He, listen, he bore our sins. He bore our sins on the cross. And that's a powerful picture. So do not harden your heart to Christ, but humble yourself under his mighty hand. That's my plea to you today. There's so much more I want to share that we don't have time to cover. But also a part of this text that I think is really important, and maybe I encourage you to go read these texts later, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18, which talks about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. I mean, I encourage you, maybe it's your homework, okay? Yes, I can give you homework. Your teachers do, I can too. Um, what's that? Ephesians? Yeah, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's so important to understand spiritual warfare and you understand the role of the armor of God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 10, another good verse, verse 3 to 5. I want to encourage you guys to meditate on those passages this week as you think about spiritual warfare, okay? Well, let me pray for us, and band, you guys can come on up. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word and for you even sustaining me as I try to clearly articulate what this passage is about, and there's, there's a lot of complexity to it, but Lord, I, I thank you for your grace in communicating these things, and I trust that you will, where I have failed, that you will make up for it for sure, because you are the Spirit of God who helps us to understand and illuminate our minds to the Scriptures, that you will help these students to understand it, if it's not today, that one day in their life, as they continue to study your Word thoroughly. I pray that they are challenged by these, this time in your Word, and that they, um, that they won't settle for not understanding it, but they will be hungry for your word. They'll meditate on it morning and evening, day and night. And that God, you be glorified in their hearts. That their hearts would not be hardened to you, but be soft to receive the implanted word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.